Welcome to the Gut Doctor Podcast, where Dr. Neil Parikh describes GI disorders and answers common questions related to the GI tract. Please note this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. We hope you enjoy. Welcome back to the Gut Doctor Podcast. I'm your host, Neil Parikh, and today we return to the Food as Medicine series. Earlier in this series, we did an overview episode on weight loss diets, and our listeners wanted more, so we are doing some deeper dives into specific strategies. Today, we will discuss the paleo diet and the Whole30 diet, and to help us get through these diets, I welcome back Jamie Allers, our friendly neighborhood dietitian from Harford Healthcare's Digestive Health Center. You ready for another one, Jamie? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. At first glance, our listeners may be wondering why we grouped paleo and Whole30, but there are many similarities between these two diets, including the categories of food to eat and not to eat. Uh, Can you tell us which general food groups both of these diets avoid? Yeah, it's a great place to start. So paleo tends to eliminate grains, things like, you know, products made of wheat, like bread or oats, also beans, otherwise known as legumes, black beans, chickpeas, things of that nature, dairy products, milk, cheese, and yogurt, and then also processed sugars. Whole30 is a little more particular. They eliminate all added sugar, even those that are considered more natural options like honey or maple syrup. They also advise avoiding alcohol and similar to paleo, you're going to be avoiding grains, legumes, dairy, and some other added ingredients that are used as preservatives, stabilizers, or emulsifiers in packaged or processed foods. Okay. So you you have to avoid a lot there. Um, (laughs) What are the food groups that the diets emphasize or let you eat? Right. So basically both promote very minimal ingredient food. So we're talking one ingredient type things here, like vegetables, fruit, nuts, and seeds, sources of dietary fat, like cooking oils, olive oil, avocado oil, and animal protein sources, whether that's beef, poultry, seafood, eggs, you're really trying to focus on the least processed versions of these foods as well. So for example, if you're going to have bacon, looking for a bacon that doesn't have added sugar or corn syrup and things like that. I remember you stress avoiding processed foods in our Mediterranean diet episode as well. So um, at first glance, both these diets seem to be high protein, low carb diets. Uh, How effective are these diets in terms of weight loss? Yeah. So it could be that they're low carb, but not necessarily all the time. So it can be a common misconception that the diets are low carb. They're modified to be low carb a lot of the times, but Technically, you can still have starchy vegetables like potatoes and fruits that may not always be considered compliant with a traditional low-carb diet. So some followers of paleo will actually also allow sweet potato, but not white potato. So there's some caveat on this and a little bit of a debate on um, particular people's theories on it. But in terms of how effective they are at weight loss, it really depends on how you implement them. So oftentimes when a person starts a paleo diet or a whole 30 program, they're going to experience weight loss, but what is it that that person is cutting out of their diet when they adopted these plans, right? So for instance, maybe they're having a veggie omelet in the morning instead of donuts, or they're having a salad with chicken instead of skipping that meal or going for fast food. So part of that initial weight loss might come from the general changes to more healthful, one ingredient, home cooked, less processed meals. 
And additionally, the Whole30 does have a component of mindful eating. They actually kind of advise participants to avoid foods that might be difficult to portion control, like cookies. And during that Whole30 program, you're actually told to stay off of the scale. So you're more conscious of other benefits that are happening to you physically from changing your food choices, like improved energy levels. Oh yeah. So I actually remember I did a modified whole 30 and I think I cheated, um, a few years back, but I felt more energy, uh, right away felt more energy. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. what other benefits do these diets potentially have? Right. So definitely the energy is one of them. Sometimes people feel that they're sleeping better and even improvement of digestive eat of issues, maybe constipation, diarrhea, gas, or bloating. And then also some people find that their skin almost gets clearer if they're having any issues with acne. Again, though, I think this gets back to that similar issue of the weight loss that might happen. Are these benefits really inherent of the diet itself, whether it's paleo or whole 30, or is it really just due to the fact that you may no longer be eating something that was causing you a problem? So, you know, for example, maybe you were lactose intolerant, you didn't even realize it. And then you eliminate dairy on these plans and you see that your digestive system complaints are better because you're not eating dairy. Or maybe you were eating a traditional Western diet, which is generally really low in fiber and it's high in concentrated sugars and processed foods. And so eating in paleo or whole 30 manner is going to help you increase your fiber intake and also balance your blood sugar, which the fiber can help with your bowel movements, but then control of blood sugar might be helping with your energy and your sleep and whatnot. So there have been some randomized controlled trials that actually involve the paleo diets. And since this plan is really high in fruits and vegetables and lean proteins, nuts and seeds, we actually see similar benefits to other plants that are similar in those types of foods, such as the Mediterranean diet. So in that way, you then see additional benefits such as improved uh, blood glucose regulation, lower blood pressure, and also lower triglycerides. That's that's great. Um, I I know. So paleo whole 30 focus on similar food groups, um, but they present with different timelines. Whole 30 is usually a month long diet. Can you expand a little more on how these diets are implemented or how you implement them for patients? Yeah. So the paleo diet really tends to be recommended as a lifestyle, ideally that you're trying to adopt. So, you know, in this way with all lifestyle changes, it may not be about being perfect all the time, but maybe this is generally how you eat 80% of the time. And on your birthday, you have cake, right? So that might be part of how people do that for the long term. The whole 30 is really formatted as a program that lasts 30 days. And you have a few choices at the end of 30 days. You can, the program I think wants you more to see how you feel and go through the process of reintroducing some of the things that you eliminated and assess how you feel with bringing those back into your diet. So to go back to the dairy example, you know, if you were to bring dairy back in and now you're noticing, Hey, you know, every time I eat cheese, I'm getting really bloated. That gives you feedback that dairy maybe just isn't the best choice for you to have on a daily basis. And so, and again, and if you're looking for weight loss through these programs, it's really not advertised or marketed as a weight loss plan. So it's not as if you get guidance as to, hey, if you want to continue to lose weight, this is what you should do. Um, So you're kind of left at a stall there with that 30-day challenge. But again, if paleo is working for you for weight loss, you can kind of continue it, 
see how you're doing with it, make changes and adjust based off of your progress and how you're feeling. And this is really where working with someone, again, can help you to individualize this to continue for the progress that you're looking for. Yeah, I've heard paleo is difficult long-term, so you definitely would want to be working with a dietitian. Um, Are there any GI conditions beyond obesity, beyond fatty liver disease, where you would recommend these diets? Uh, Well, not necessarily, but it is possible that eating in these styles might be helpful with other conditions such as reflux or, you know, as we mentioned before, maybe improvement in constipation or diarrhea. But again, like it kind of comes back to, you know, what is assisting with that improvement? Um, Is it now that you're not having a lot of processed foods and now you're eating more, you know, whole foods, less processed that are higher in fiber and nutrients? So it may not be that you have to do paleo or whole 30 exactly to accomplish these similar goals. And then although these plants both eliminate certain foods that are common intolerances like gluten and dairy being big ones, you know, a simple elimination protocol could potentially do a similar thing GI wise um, without having to go completely paleo or whole 30, for instance, just doing a trial of a dairy elimination or a gluten elimination. Um, there's also the low FODMAP diet out there before that I know you've talked about before on your podcast. And there is a bit more research and evidence to support that when you're looking in the um, scenario of certain settings like IBS. So, so that's good to know. So you, you, you wouldn't really use paleo or whole 30 as diets to determine food intolerances. So. Wouldn't be my good go-to. Let's okay. Say. <laughs> uh, going back to the essence of these diets, uh, they both limit intake of grains, dairy, legumes, you know, traditionally we consider those good things. So there has to be some negative implications of these food restrictions. Mm-hmm. And to start with dairy, that's a, a huge source of calcium for a lot of people. So if you're going to cut out dairy, you want to make sure you're getting calcium from other places, whether that's dark leafy greens, canned seafood that has bones like sardines is a really good one. Um, beans or legumes are also a major source of protein for be- vegetarians. So if you're vegetarian and you're trying to do a whole 30, you just want to make sure that you're finding protein other places. If you're going to cut out beans, whether that's nuts and seeds, or if you're someone who eats eggs, you could, um, include eggs as well. So, but in general, it's that sustainability and the limits of certain foods in terms of, well, I'm never going to have dairy again. That has more of the impact for someone um, in terms of someone sticking with the plan. If it's something that they really enjoy and they want to, um, they don't really see themselves cutting out forever. Yeah. I mean, you've mentioned this and I think this is key. Sustainability remains the key word. Mm-hmm. Um, now both these diets are more heavy in protein. Um, are there adverse effects of such high protein diets? Uh, I have heard, you know, maybe incorrectly, uh, that too much protein is linked with kidney stones. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's easy for these types of plants to become high in protein. It's probably the most obvious and easiest thing to eat. Um, that you know that you can be including without much worry. It's less confusing. And so we might lean on the protein on these plans. Um, But if you really look at everything you can eat and balance these plans correctly, they don't have to be excessively high protein diets. So I always use that plate reference as a good visual. So, you know, if half of your plate is filled with vegetables and fruit and protein is on a quarter of your plate, you're at least helping to moderate naturally the protein portion you're consuming at meals. If you have a certain situation where you have a protein restriction from that's recommended from one of your medical providers, 
in the setting of kidney disease, let's say, or if you had a history of a particular type of kidney stones where you have to limit certain foods, you're going to want to be mindful of those individual modifications because you would be at higher risk of consequences if you tend to lean on protein when you're implementing these plans. There is some concern with higher protein diets and kidney injury or how that might contribute to kidney stones. And part of that um, is more specifically with uric acid stones because of the acidity that happens from increased protein breakdown. But the research is mixed as to if the diets are causing these issues or if you are already at risk or if it's even an issue in those that have no history of issues. So really just to assume you want to listen lessen your risk in general, keep hydrated, and stick with that variety of foods and that plate idea I referenced before. So you're avoiding just excess intake of any one nutrient at all that also could contribute to issues like that. Okay. So stay hydrated. Point number yes, one, there you go. <laughs> uh, point number two, and we just mentioned this is sustainability, right? So mm-hmm. uh, are these diets sustainable in your opinion, you know, long-term? You know, for some individuals, I really think they can be sustainable and it doesn't take long to start looking online or Instagram or, you know, any social media and see that people have essentially made careers off of advertising these types of plans and creating meal plans for them and whatnot. So, you know, the good news is, is they're really based off of food. So it's not as if you need to be hooked into some subscription service where you're ordering shakes every month or something like that. It's not packaged products that tend to be more expensive and maybe you get bored of because you're limited with your options. So, you know, that's a huge part of this. And if it is more sustainable, it's, you know, in terms of whether it's helping you with weight management um, or you're seeing some of those other benefits, I think if your energy improves, if your sleep improves, if your lab values improve, that just gives you more of a reason to continue to do something. So if you can obtain that from the plans, that always helps with um, sustainability as well. Um, And yeah, so I think for the most part, I see people kind of engaging in these types of changes in that 80-20 fashion where they're not letting themselves be, you know, completely restricted by it, but at the same time, they're following it the majority of the time. Yeah. I know you mentioned this 80, 20, uh, rule and I, that just may be a general way when you approach many of these dietary changes, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. 80, 20, um, I think another general rule that I've learned at least past over the past few episodes is that if you're going to try these things, do it with a registered dietitian. Um, I think, you know, I tell my patients, everything from the low FODMAP diet to any of these diets are, are, are challenging on your own. It's hard to keep track of what's working, what's not working. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Jamie, you've been tremendously helpful. Um, I know our listeners appreciate these deeper dives you did after our initial episode. So thank you again. Uh, hope you and everyone listening have a great rest of your day. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the gut doctor podcast for additional information about today's topic, please visit ConnecticutGI.org. Your feedback is important to us, so please remember to subscribe, rate, and review. Stay tuned for more episodes of The Gut Doctor, and if you think you may need to see a gastroenterologist, just trust your gut.